Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Navarpu, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Maura Finkelstein about her new book, The Archive of Loss, Lively Ruination in Middle and Mumbai, published by Duke University Press in 2019. Maura teaches anthropology at Muhlenberg College. Uh, congrats, Maura, on this beautiful poetic book, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, so are we. Um, Before we start talking about the book, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, perhaps how you became an anthropologist. Sure. Yeah. Anthropology was on my radar from a really young age, unlike um, I think a lot of Americans who don't really discover it until college. But it's it's sort of a funny story. I very... um, Early on, I think I was like 11 or 12, uh, discovered Gene All books, like the Clan of the Cave Bear. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so my first uh, exposure to anthropology was as like Paleolithic pornography. Wow. Um, <laughs> and so by the time I got to college, I was like, this is definitely something worth studying. Um, and I ended up uh, mostly taking physical anthropology classes and archaeology classes as an undergrad. And it wasn't actually until I had graduated from college and um, joined and then quit the Peace Corps that I realized that there was a form of knowing that had to do with like long-term engagement and uh, sort of attention to local knowledge that I was really invested in. And so then I ended up um, thinking that I'd go into international development and get a master's in anthropology. And when I started the master's program, I realized that I actually wanted to learn to think and be um, an anthropologist. And so then I ended up going on to get a PhD in cultural anthropology. Great. Um, That's a really interesting origin story, I must say. Oh, so uh, Mara, before we begin discussing the book and the contents of the book, um, I was wondering if you could share with us how this book even began. When did you start 
thinking about Midlands in Mumbai and how were you inspired to write it? That's a, I, lo- I love this question because it lets me talk about some of my favorite people in the world. I um, knew that I was going to do something in India for my PhD, but you know, <laughs> India is quite big. And I had applied for the PhD with a program that actually would have placed me in Rajasthan, in Jaipur. And very early on, abandoned that project, as many of us do. Um, but I, my sort of relationship with India started when I was in middle school and then mostly in high school because my closest friend growing up uh, moved from Calcutta to the U.S. when we were 12, I believe. And I sort of grew up partially in her family. She grew up partially in mine. We used to joke that she wanted to be Jewish and I wanted to be Indian. And um, when I was uh, starting to think about where I wanted to go for dissertation field work, her parents uh, were living in Bombay. And her father, who actually recently passed away, Gautam Adhikari, was uh, starting up DNA. And so he and Rita were living in central Mumbai in this new building. And so they said, you know, you've never, you've spent a lot of time in India, but you've never been to Bombay. Why don't you come see the city? And so I did. And um, about a week into being in Bombay, um, Gautam was driving me around and, and sort of laughed and said, I mean, my version of the story is probably different than his would be at this point. But um, he said, you've been here for a week. We live in this bizarre neighborhood. You haven't once asked me what's going on around here. And so I joke that he sort of shamed me into this project because I realized <laughs> that they lived in a building that had once been a mill compound. And the neighborhood looked like a um, a mess to me. It, I just didn't know how to see it. It looked like a construction site. And I had spent the week going to Bandra, going to town, moving back and forth, driving over the flyovers that literally hide the Midlands, but then also being in these new buildings that had replaced the old buildings. And I feel like he gave me permission to look around and be curious in a way that um, I hadn't allowed myself to do yet because I didn't know how to see the place in which I was in. And it sort of evolved from there. Wow. Um, That's a very personal, I guess, uh, journey into the book. And that's lovely. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, So I think, of course, the book is titled The Archive of Loss. And I think you do something so interesting in pushing us in thinking about the archive differently. And at several points in the book, you talk about the archive as something that's not place-based or just place-based or location-based. And I was hoping that you could um, tell our listeners how you were conceptualizing the archive in your work. Mm. Yeah, I, you know, I think a lot of books, and mine definitely included, don't become the story that they're trying to tell um, for many years after a dissertation is written. So I'm talking about first books. And this was definitely not the dissertation. The dissertation was a story of the neighborhood and a story of the mill. And there's some elements that were definitely there. But it took many, many years for me to come to the framing of the archive. And it, I th- but I think it had always been in me and in the story and in one of the reasons that I was fascinated and drawn to the area. And so, you know, I think in some sense it was 
trying to articulate the feeling I had being in a space that I saw as very critical um, and with people that I saw as very important, even as they were present and sort of marginalized, without trying to say that I was creating a corrective or I was challenging history or I was trying to replace the central narrative of the city, which is that the mills are all gone, um, with something that would um, push back against that or argue against it. I was trying to think about how those two stories could operate alongside each other, how people who were you know, written or spoken out of existence could still be present without saying, you know, voices that are writing or speaking these people out of existence are just wrong, but instead say like, why is that happening? Why are these stories circulating? Why has this history been written? It's not without reason. And it is not something that I want to erase and replace of something else. So it was more of, of an optic for me of, of how can I think about where this story is situated in a, the larger landscape of the city, both historically, both demographically, um, but also uh, sort of in thinking about um, people who are still present and yet being said that they weren't present. And so when I started to realize that I had also spent a lot of time during my field work in a museum that was down the street that was telling a story of the city, I started realizing that that was a really important place in which um, history was being cultivated and curated and that I could imagine the mill as an element of that museum's archive. That if somebody else was the archivist of that museum, then the galleries would look very different. And so then it started to sort of translate into histories of labor and um, mapping of housing and um, framing of history and thinking, okay, well, the, the easily consumable histories or spaces that we move through have power and they're important for particular reasons. How do I think about those other spaces or bodies or people or histories or buildings that are adjacent, but not within the view of that central story. And so the archive um, framing sort of came from there. It was really my struggle to figure out how to write this book and tell this story without saying the history is wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. I see what you mean. Um, I guess, and in a way, it really challenges uh, one dominant view of the city, right? And, and as you so beautifully show in your book that these mills are just considered to be like empty of people, of of lives, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so when did you, I guess, hear of this dominant narrative that these mills just don't exist anymore? When during fieldwork did you come across this? And was it something that you had, that you found yourself arguing against all the time? It was, yeah, it, it's um, funny. It was actually the other way around. I was just told and everything I read sort of um, enforced the story. And this was before I, I left for my long-term fieldwork that there weren't any mills left that were functioning. And so when I went to do my fieldwork, I was not looking for a mill that was functioning. I was looking 
to um, think about what was happening to the neighborhoods uh, in central Bombay now that the mills were gone. And the now that the mills were gone part was just sort of assumed because that was what I was being told and that is what what I was reading. And that was um, what made sense to me because I didn't see anything to contradict that. And it was actually only um, a month into my field work when I moved to Bombay that I I sort of randomly was at a party and met some, which is funny, like now that we're quarantined, I'm thinking, oh, mm-hmm. parties, <laughs> those were a thing. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad I went to that party back when we were allowed to go to parties. Um, but I was at this party and I met someone who knew um, the mill owner's son. And he said, oh, you know, or she said, you know, I, I, you should meet my friend because his father owns a mill that still functions. And I was thinking, what do you mean? And then slowly realized um, over the next couple months that there were actually still mills functioning. This was the one privately owned mill. There were several that had been nationalized and were owned by the government. And the, this party was such an important moment for me because I never would have gotten access to the nationalized mills. This is the only space I could have imagined ever being given permission to go into. And then it just sort of happened that the mill owner's son had gone to Stanford and I was getting my PhD from Stanford. And he was actually someone who was very interested in um, art and academia and scholarship and liked the idea of giving me access. I don't think his father was thrilled about it, but um, <laughs> <laughs> that had still worked out well. And so, I mean, I, you know, one of the things that I think about a lot is how fieldwork often in retrospect seems very magical because things happen and then worlds open up to us or things don't happen and worlds don't open up to us, but we only see the former in the rearview mirror. And so there were all of these series of delightful accidents that let me into a space that I had been told didn't exist. And so I very well could have gone to Bombay, never have gone to this party, never have discovered the mill I called Thanraj and written a book about what was happening in the neighborhood now that the mills were gone. Right. Well, yeah. And I think, um, all of us who do ethnography would certainly agree that ethnography is just a series of serendipitous, almost <laughs> accidents, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, the structure of the book is really interesting. You have chapters that um, that I think start with the archive of the mill, then the archive of the worker, the archive mm-hmm. of the chawl, the archive of the strike, and the archive of the fire. So I'm really curious to know whether there was some sort of what was the logic behind ordering these archives the way you did in the book? And if you could uh, tell our listeners a little more about the, the uh, yeah, the logic, I guess, of the structure of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think I have to start by giving a shout out to my editor at Duke University Press, Elizabeth Alt, who, aside from being the greatest human, um, trusted that regardless of whether there was a logic, that I had some kind of vision because... Um, she never, like she pushed back when I needed someone to push back, but she never, um, tried to move me away from this framing. She never tried to move me away from the, um, the archival, um, 
structure of the book or the title or anything, even before I couldn't quite articulate why it made sense to me. She was sort of willing to trust that I would get to where I needed to go. And because as a first author, what a privilege to have an editor who trusts you to find your way. Um, I don't know how common that is, but I imagine it's not that common. And I feel really, really lucky to have had the opportunity to work with her. And um, so I, I feel like I felt my way into that structure in a very, um, how do I want to articulate it? It felt like I needed to trust myself to just um, have that organization come from me because come to me because I sort of thought of the title early on into framing it as a book and I couldn't quite articulate it in the first version of the book. Um, and I can't even remember, I should have looked at it, if that was even how the chapters were organized in the first version. It was more of me trying to show that I had something to say about the archive as a um, analytic framing that allowed me to organize the chapters in the way that you know forced me to think about archives beyond physical space. So I could think of the mill as an archive, but then also be making the argument that that, you know, lot with buildings in it, which was a bit, a bit more obvious, or the chawl, which, you know, could be seen as this, you know, is a spatial formation because it's a, a housing structure. That th Those were, were maybe obvious, but like, can I also think about bodies as archives? Can I think about histories as archives? Um, can I think about an event as an archive. Um, and so I almost feel like the chapters emerged as I was trying to help myself make an argument that felt very visual to me, even if the spatiality of it was um, beyond what I was encountering in other um, engagements with the term, if that makes sense. It felt very intuitive to me, um, much more than logical. Yeah. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, was very struck by how one of the central arguments of the book seemed to me uh, writing against a linear conception of time. And even the the way you've structured the book sort of, um, to me, slyly argues against a linear logic of chapterization. So <laughs> it's a verb that I've been using now, but yeah. I love um, it. Yeah. <laughs> and also, I mean, one other thing that I'll say, um, and, you know, we can tie this back to the, what are you working on next question in a while. But um, I, when I, when I started writing the book, I had just moved from San Francisco to Pennsylvania, where I'm working now. And one of the things that I was able to do in living in a less urban area and having a little bit more disposable income after being a graduate student and then an adjunct was that I started um, riding horses again. And it's something that had been central to my life through my 20s or into my 20s, my early 20s, and then sort of fell off. And I don't think I've thought about it until this moment in this way. But the thing that I'm constantly dazzled by is how you can know something in your body or you could remember something in your body. I started writing again after not writing seriously for a really long time. And it was like, I couldn't explain why my body knew how to do things that it knew. Like, what, what, it, like where, what, is, what does that mean? How do we think about how we store these experiences in our body in a very visceral kind of way that we might not be able to call on intellectually or through um, a sort of like linguistic memory, but our bodies can still 
perform our past or they can be feeling our past in the present moment. And so I think I had been also thinking about that a lot and then thinking about how so many of my informants were experiencing their bodies out of time in terms of like remembering how they felt 20 years ago um, and sort of having that collapse. And that also felt very archival to me as well. Could you perhaps say a little more about that? Because there there are beautiful sections of the book that, I mean, uh, it was very difficult to read, but you write so poetically that one just had to keep reading. I mean, the book is a page turner, um, but about pain and memory and how it's inscribed in people's bodies and related to history and territoriality, I guess. So I was hoping that you could maybe say a little more about what made you start thinking about bodies as archives. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I had been, I mean, so the second chapter sort of shows that a lot of the process of writing the book was going back to notes and looking at words that people have had told me years before and like realizing that I didn't understand what they meant in the moment or trying to figure out what I was being told that maybe I didn't have the tools or the experience to to hear at the time. And there was one conversation that I have this very clear memory of in which I was sitting around with a bunch of the workers. Um, the machines had been turned off from the day for the day. And so nobody was technically working. Um, but everyone was telling, we were sitting by the window. It was a, you know, a nice breezy, um, moment in an otherwise very hot day. And uh, I was I was with about seven workers and we were sitting around having chai and everyone was telling me about how hard they were working. <laughs> and I, I, I later, um, like I think a year or so later, was uh, talking with um, a good friend who was at the time um, a mentor and a committee member, Barb Voss, who's an archaeologist and who helped me think a lot about um, uh, or like reconnect to my archaeological roots while I was um, writing this. And I was saying, yeah, they were lying to me. Like we were sitting around and there was no work being done. And they were just telling me about how hard they were working. And she helped sort of urge me away from the, these people are lying to me to, well, what do you think that means? Like, why do you think that's the story that they are telling you? They're clearly not trying to deceive you because you have just you know, been there for months watching what the day looks like. And so I was really struck by that question of um, how do you think beyond the obvious and immediate meaning of this exchange? And so I, I, you know, over the years, I thought about um, how so much of the time I spent in the mill was not actually working the machines because there was so little production that was happening at the time, but there was so many conversations that were collapsing the past and the present as though the end of the work day in, you know, 2000, whenever what it was, 2009, um, felt like the work day in 1980. And so all of the aches and pains that had been accumulated, they were still in the workers' bodies, but now these workers were older. They had carried these feelings for so long that they had begun to change and additionally, you can go from working very, very long hours on your feet all day when you're young to having the same kind of feeling come to maybe like one or two hours of work a day. And so 
I was thinking a lot about how I had to sort of think beyond my immediate observations of what work to look like in the mill in order to understand what my informants were feeling. And so I started to think about how physically, like we can talk about memory and how we carry memories with us, but also physically our bodies are these accumulations of experience and accident and opportunity and, and everything that we are experiencing on a daily basis. And, you know, in, in the present moment, wherever we find ourselves or like for my mill worker informants who were all in their late fifties, early sixties looked much older than that. I mean, you know, mill work really breaks down a body. Um, but the way they felt in their body was an entire lifetime. And so the, the question of, of archival embodiment really came from those conversations in the mill. Yeah, I mean, um, that's, and it's very beautifully fleshed out even in the book, um, I must say. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. So <laughs> That's my favorite I, chapter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. It is a very, very evocative chapter too. Um, I think my, let's, let's go to my favorite chapter, which okay. was, <laughs> which was uh, the one that was uh, centered around the chol. And uh-huh. I loved the way you thought about queer time in the shawl and I was hoping that you would um, share what you mean by queer time and how it plays out in the shawl with our listeners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that is actually one element of the book that existed in the dissertation. Um, something that's quite funny about um, like turning a dissertation into a book is that it's this incredible palimpsest of over a decade. And so there are all of these, like it almost feels like this, um, sort of chorus of the self in which, you know, over those years, whatever a writer's voice or whatever an anthropologist's ability at interpretation, like all of those are sort of um, uh, collected together in this object that becomes a book. And so a lot of, of that chapter is, I think, the best part of the dissertation. And so queer temporality was something that I was thinking about a lot when I was a graduate student. And it wasn't something I had quite figured out how to weave well into the text. And so it was one of these things where a couple of my committee members weren't dismissive of it, but they were unconvinced that I had fully fleshed out what I was trying to say. And I think, um, or I'm hopeful that I, I got to the point in which I wanted to get in that chapter, but it's also a relationship with literature that had lasted for, you know, a decade, um, unlike a lot of other literature that I engaged with in the book. And so the thing that I constantly thought about when I was writing about housing, and especially the two women who I write about, who I call Manda and Sushila, who were my two closest informants, um, and two people that I, I love fiercely. They felt like very different versions of, of mother fi- figures to me while I was there. And I'm really grateful for um, how they helped me create this project. Um, but they always spoke about their homes in these ways that made me feel like they were very aware of the strangeness of time in a place like a chal. And 
that self-awareness was really interesting to me, a sort of um, acknowledgement of being out of time, but in very, very different ways. Manda was very defiant and Sushila sort of seemed like she felt exhausted by that. Um, and a lot of the book is very, actually very personal, even though I'm telling a story about Bombay. I mean, the, the sense of, of, of existing out of time or feeling like time just doesn't feel the way I'm being told it operates is something that I think I've experienced my entire life. And I don't think I'm unique in that. Um, and so in many ways, it was me sort of thinking through my own relationship with time, what it means to feel out of time, which, you know, again, I think is something that a lot of people feel because like time, what is it? Um, but I, the, the, when I was reading, um, the, the material, the, um, texts that I cite in, in that chapter, they were all giving me a way of understanding how, um, one can sort of uh, change the frame in which that feeling of dragging behind or being out of time gets um, sort of sifted into a really like heteronormative, capitalist, productive-minded time frame, and instead says like, what what happens if we see the the um, the wake of modernity as a place in which um, like delightful ways of being exist or if the trailing behind is actually a space of of on the one hand it could be resistance and I think it is in terms of Manda or just um like a very different kind of embodiment in the sense of Sushila. And so thinking of Chal time as being queer, thinking about these the, you know, the Chal uh was actually designed as like so much modernist architecture is designed to do to control the way in which people can live and organize themselves. And so chals were designed to be um, temporary housing for migrant workers who would come mostly men in large groups from rural areas and live in the chals for a certain amount of time while they made money in the mills. And then they would take them back to the, take the money back to their families. And so there were all, always these like linked um, circles of migration moving in and out of the city. And so the chal was designed to encourage that um, uh, impermanence. You would have these like 100 to 150 square foot units in which um, like 15 to 20 young single men would, you know, live and sleep through three rotations of um, work at the mill. And it would never really be a home that people could like bring their families. And that was the, that was the intention of the architecture. And of course, like people found a way to subvert that and they became these extended family homes. And to me, that feels really queer. Like it's, it's a sort of contradiction of the way in which familial organization operates. It was a like queering of, um, you know, domestic respectability because these small units mean that so much of your life happens outside of the units, which of course makes me heartbroken to think of my informants during a global pandemic, because when you, when your home is not supposed to be just the inside of four walls, what do you do when you're supposed to shelter in place? Um, but the, the beauty of those housing structures was that it created this different kind of connection and this different kind of, of occupation. And so in addition to the temporal element of it. Just the um, the structures themselves felt very queer because unlike a lot of the new 
apartment buildings that were being um, built um, where trails were being torn down or in peripheral um, bordering neighborhoods. These were structures that also were sort of like challenging and breaking down the way in which families are supposed to live together and with community. So queer temporality let me get at both the um, the time of the space and also um, the intention of the space in terms of sort of like capitalist and uh, kin models of domesticity. That's um, really, really interesting. And it's also, yeah, I mean, one can't help but worry about all these people in these settlements at a time like this. Um, well, my next question, I guess, is about chapter four. This was also really, really interesting to read as someone, uh, because I keep thinking about methodology and um, ethnography all the time, and we've had conversations about this. But I guess you talk about how, as an ethnographer, we often have to navigate um, lies and manipulations that sometimes our informants tell us. And you know, and also like dealing with people who sometimes say things that just go against everything you stand for. Um, I jokingly call them hateful informants, even though, you know, like, of course, uh, it's, and yeah, I don't want you to talk about anyone in particular, but I guess I was wondering if you uh, would be willing to share some thoughts on these difficult entanglements in which we find ourselves as ethnographers. Yeah, I, I, and I know we've talked about this, and I think about this a lot. Um, and you know, my understanding of of the the person I call Kishan, who is the center of this chapter, was really something that I struggled to come to terms with because you know I I really do, and I love that I get an opportunity to talk about methods because I see this book as many many things, but I kind of do see it as a methods text, um, and you know I'm very invested in conversations about ethnographic methods and similar to you know my initial like I don't want to you know do a historical corrective to the narrative that you know mills are gone I want to like show the real history um the the flip of that was that I had so um for people who haven't read the book, one of the biggest tensions that emerges in a um, workspace like a textile mill is that it's a place in which um, Maharashtrian workers and North Indian workers, primarily from the states of Uttar Pradesh and Bihar, um, come into like close working relationships with each other in this very, very complicated historical wake of a textile strike in the early 1980s in which... Um, the leader of the textile strike, Data Samant, is also seen as being very wrapped up in um, a notion that um, this is an opportunity to fight for um, uh, Maharashtrian sovereignty in the mill um, environment. And so North Indians feel very alienated by this. And like, sort of across the board, the historical um, record shows that like, you know, 15 maybe 20% of the workers were North Indian, but the rest were Maharashtrian. And so when I first started doing fieldwork, I was um, very excited 
to hear from my North Indian informants that that was not true, that they had been written out of the history, that they had once been the majority. They had this whole history (laughs) that I was like, oh, I can like challenge this whole story that's like writing North Indians out. This is like my, you know, ethnographic activism of like correcting the historical record. And I, I really bought into that. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer ashamed of it, but I did have a period of time where I was like, wow, I was kind of dumb about that. Or like, I was really driven by my own desires and not what I was actually being told. And, um, I really struggled with this as well, because one of the workers who was, um, originally from Bihar, who, um, I call Kishan was someone who wanted to tell me all these stories about his own, um, experiences with disenfranchisement and racism and exclusion. And we spent a lot of time together and he made me feel really uncomfortable, but I also felt like I had to, um, champion his story. And so I never put myself in a dangerous situation and I never like, um, felt like I was being overtly threatened by him. But I do think he sort of brings up a messy gray area with a lot of um, anthropologists, ethnographers, especially um, those of us who occupy any marginalized um, identity, whether it be gender or sexuality or um, race or class or whatever, um, in which I felt like I had to show up for him because that's what anthropologists do. And he felt like I owed him things that he was going to find a way to get. And it was an exchange that I hadn't really been prepped for. And I think we're having these conversations more and more, but it wasn't a conversation that I had had before I left for field work. And so I didn't know how to navigate it. Um, And I'm very fortunate that I'm okay. But what I did notice after months and months of hanging out with him and also having other mill workers who are all Maharashtra and telling me he was a bad person and me then needing to like prove that he wasn't by spending time with him was that nothing he was telling me was true. I mean, everything about like his experience in the world was true. I mean, he was very marginalized. He was extremely um, financially precarious. He did not have a good living situation. He was, um, you know, his, his role at the mill was very low on the um, income and, um, prestige scale. And so everything that he experienced was true, but he told it to me through a history that was factually incorrect. And so for a little while, I was like, I guess I can't write about him because I know that what he was telling me was wrong. And I also don't even know if I want to write about him because I don't, like, we're not supposed to dislike our informants. And I really dislike this person. And I really dislike the way he made me feel And, um, it took a really long time for me to get to a place in which I realized that he was maybe my most valuable informant because he, um, sort of helped me destroy the romance that I had with ethnography in which like I could get this perfect and truthful story that there, I mean, why would, why would any of my informants inhabit a sort of like ethical and political subject position that no one else I've ever met in my life would like, it it kind of doesn't make sense. Like people are messy and he was a mess. Um, 
And so I started reading, trying to find examples, first of all, of like what it feels like to be threatened in the field, which like the literature has really changed since I was a grad student, but there wasn't very much out there. Um, And also like what it means to take seriously the lies of your informants. And I also couldn't find that. I mean, I do know that there are some people and I say, I try to do, try to do my best to find that that literature and cite it in the book. But as far as I had access to, there wasn't really a lot that was being written about it. And yet I knew that if I did the thing that I, I try to do, which is sort of like trust myself to find the story that I would somehow that Kishan would somehow help me find the reason that he was so meaningful to me and meaningful to the story, even when I disliked him and didn't trust him and knew that he was not telling me the truth. And so I was really trying to actually move away from the um, framing of like, he's lying to me to he's telling me something that is untrue. And I think that that's a really important distinction. And one of the things that I try really hard to do in the book is like be as someone who is like, very monolinguistic and struggles really hard to learn um, other languages. Like learning Hindi was really hard for me and it was never great. And like my Marathi was, was, was pretty abysmal. Um, But I do feel like as a writer, attention to language is really important to me. And so I was trying to think about how our language can create the realities of the people that we write about. And for me, it became really important to not see Kishan as a liar, but to see him as a teller of untruths. And those untruths were really, really, really important in order for me to understand his experience as someone who was really marginalized, who, you know, really had an entire life of class, well, not caste, but class, regional, um, identity-based oppression um, that made him into a very angry and bitter and resentful person, totally understandably. I mean, and he was not the hero of an oppression story, right? He wasn't like the, the, the sort of like, um, uh, I mean, he wasn't the hero and I I don't know if he's an anti-hero. I, I don't like the idea of an anti-hero, but, um, you know, I could find his story so indicative of his of of like the larger story that he was trying to tell me about what it means to be marginalized your entire life without making him occupy the space of a heroic figure um, because that's just too much pressure to put on anyone and it certainly wouldn't have been um, reflective of my relationship with him and it was it's the scariest chapter that I wrote like I felt like it was a huge risk. So I appreciate you <laughs> being compelled by it because it felt if I felt like I was saying things and writing things that I wasn't supposed to say and write. Um, and because, I mean, maybe it is actually my favorite chapter because I feel like it was the, the point in the storytelling, the point in the ethnography and the point in the writing where I felt like I had to just like jump off that cliff and um, trust that I was moving in the right direction because if the fact that I couldn't find that many examples of the kind of storytelling that I felt like I was confronting made me feel like I really had to do it. But that also made it feel incredibly vulnerable. And it's funny because it started off as a conference paper that I I called, I think like the vulnerable informant or something that really ended up being like thinking about my own vulnerability. Um, and I see Kishan as a very vulnerable person. And I feel like I see myself as an ethnographer and somebody writing 
about him and me and my relationship with him as something that's very vulnerable. So, yeah, thank you. That's um, really beautifully put. And, you know, I was just struck by how uh, when I was doing my own field work, um, I had a lot of these dilemmas and very often it all boiled down to what the, what the discipline, I guess, considers good ethnography and at least, and I'm in sociology and very often there is this masculine version of like immersive fieldwork that's valorized. And at times that just doesn't take into account these really difficult sort of positions it puts, especially like young, you know, like first time ethnographer graduate students in, and we never really talk about it. So I was very happy that you wrote about, uh, very personally about the way you navigated and felt about these interactions. And I think it's, uh, I mean, I plan to assign this whenever I teach a methodology or methods class um, so thank you for that. I appreciate and, that. It means a lot because I have read your re- writing about similar right. things and that has been very meaningful to me. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Maybe we should all like put together uh, like a, like a list of newer work or thinking about ethnography and the body and vulnerability and, you know, we should like share it, I guess. So I think that's a great something idea. to do. Yeah. Sign me up. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, in terms of, I guess, there's so many innovations in this book. There's conceptual innovation, there's methodological innovation. And the I guess I was, I was very, for the lack of a better word, or for the lack of a better word that I can think of right now, I guess, charmed by the four hand-drawn illustrations by Sharmish Tare that graced the book. And there's a little note on what uh, I guess both of you have decided to call intimate geographies. Yeah, she, was, she called it that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she called it that. Well, I was wondering when you decided to incorporate these, um, I guess, representations in your book, and uh, if you could tell our listeners a little more about what they mean in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I'm glad that you remember to ask me about that. Um, because I love talking about her maps. And um, yeah. I also love talking about any um, element of the story in which I can be self-deprecating in my own like inability to get out of my own way. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, um, I like very late in the game, like early, like right before I, the book was going to go into production. So like it was about to become a book. I realized that I had taken a lot of pictures and a lot of them were ending up in the book, but there wasn't a single map in the book and like, oh my God, you need a map. Um, and so I did what like, <laughs> I think a lot of people do is I took to the internet and I was looking for maps that I felt would, you know, be like, hey, folks who don't know India or South Asia or Maharashtra, this is where Bombay is. And or like, this is where the mill lands in Bombay is. Um, and uh, started realizing that I had just spent a decade putting together with like great care, um, a remapping of a space. And that now I was going to like pull a map off the internet with no care of its like history or origin or whatever. And that if you know, that would have been just like such a disappointing act in the like, I need a map in order for this to be a book. And so I realized that I wanted maps in the book that were intentional and that were connected to the story. And I had actually met the artist, Char, um, 
in Bombay, uh, like a year and a half before, because she had actually been so the owner of the mill son, who um, was my sort of like, um, in to the space, um, had like one of the things that I, you know, comes up towards the end of the book is that he was converting um, a lot of these um, abandoned spaces of the mill into art spaces. So there were a couple galleries that were going up. There was his lifestyle store that sold like the most beautiful um, uh, objects, whether it be art or interior design or whatnot. And there were also quite a few workshops in which a lot of things were being made. And um, that becomes a whole political mess in the book. But one of the really lovely parts of this was that I got introduced to some really wonderful um, not necessarily like super well-known Indian artists through um, the, the art that was displayed in the gallery in its first iteration while I was doing my field work. And then later at a party in which, um, you know, uh, years after the long-term field work in which Shar and I met at this party and really hit it off. And um, I found out that she had not only like um, displayed her work in the gallery in the mill, but she had had an artist residency in which she was making art in, um, in the mill itself. And so I had also gotten like a delightful advance from Duke, which my royalties will never pay off, but I was like, you know, it was burning a hole in my pocket. And so I reached out to her and I said, I have this amount of money that I can give you. Like, I I love your work. And you're also connected to this space. Like not very many people have ever been in this space and you are one of them and you're an incredibly talented artist who thinks about space. So like, would you be interested in um, doing some maps? And I, I wanted four. I wanted one of, of Bombay, one of India, one of um, Uttar Pradesh and one of um, Bihar. And um, we talked about it. And then um, she said, well, why don't I read the introduction to the book? And then I'll draw you what I interpret um, these maps to be. And so I sent her the introduction. She read it. And a couple weeks later, she sent me the images that are now the maps in the book. And two things happened when I looked at the images. One was that I loved them as images. And the second was I did not see them as the maps that I wanted in my book. And I just didn't think they would tell the right cartographical story to locate my readers in the geography that I was talking about. And so I was kind of upset. I was like, oh, I love these. And I love everything about like this idea but nobody would look at this map and be like, oh, this is a map of Bihar. Or like, I can, I can like locate Bombay in this map of India. And the entire point of these maps is for my reader to be like, oh, I know where Bombay is, or oh, I know where Uttar Pradesh is. And so I, I sort of like had my, oh no, what am I going to do moment? And then I stepped away from it and I kept looking at the maps and slowly I started realizing that they were actually the perfect thing to do and they were the perfect representations and they were the perfect images because the whole point of the project was challenging how we tell the story of a space and a map is a story of a space. And I even couldn't think my way out of a classical map. And so when I didn't see a classical map, like, I think I expected her to just, like, 
draw a nicer version of all of the maps on the internet. And instead, she gave me something that was like so representative of my ethnography in the way that she conceptualized space and in the way that she engaged with the stories that I was telling and her own experiences and her own like relationship to the body and relationship to place and all these things in which I was like, oh my God, I just keep not seeing the things that I need to be seeing. Like everything about this project is my inability to see what is right before me because I've been taught how to unsee things in these particular ways or how to see things differently. And so all of this is to say that once I worked my way out of the own limits of my imagination and my own limits of seeing and unseen in particular kinds of ways, the maps were like the perfect visual story to go with the story that I had written. Um, So it felt like a really fun and exciting partnership, but also a really um, necessary le- like lesson for someone to teach me about the limits of my own imagination and the ways in which I need to sort of like see myself out of um, boundaries that I didn't even know I still existed within. Yeah, and that, I mean that that it really makes all of us, I think, rethink the way we see these maps, right? And that's um, it's a very really useful exercise and challenging oneself to see beyond or like see and not unsee as um, you put it. Um, And also, can I just add something? Because I just thought of something that um, I might say and like not agree with later, but let me see if I can make this work. Anyway, um, one of the things that I am pushing back against in the book, among many, many things, is a sort of like central centering of infrastructure studies within urban anthropology, in which there are particular ways that we are allowed to tell stories of urban space, and that they are funneled through what I think is very critical. I mean, many of my, you know, close friends and valuable interlocutors are part of this um, uh, sort of like subfield, but I'm not. And I, I feel like I, I got a lot of pushback when I was trying to get journal articles published or when I was talking about my work or whether I was like being included or not included into things in which, um, like I have, you know, sometimes I think that this entire book is like a, a, a reaction to a reviewer too, who was like, you can, <laughs> like, which maybe like a lot of us are doing who, who, who wrote that, um, you're talking so much about affect, but you're never talking about structure. And you can't like, you can tell me how your informants feel, but like, that's not actually telling me about what's happening in the city. You have to tell me how development is working. And so a lot of what I write about in the introduction is like directly towards that reviewer too, in which I'm like making the argument that those things are like deeply um, entwined. And one of the things that I feel really strongly about is that my informants told me like they were the experts in their own lives and they were the experts of their experience in the city and they didn't know how development worked. They could, they could tell me their relationship to development. They could tell me what they saw and what they felt, but they had never been in spaces that I had access to. They had never talked to developers. They had never talked to lawyers. They had never talked to architects who were in charge of these like larger scale structural um, conversations and development plans. And yet they were still experts 
in their own experiences. And so I was really trying to resist the idea that I was going to tell you how my informants felt, quote unquote, but then like explain what was really happening. And I try really hard not to do that. I mean, I give some history because I think it's important, but I'm, I'm trying very hard to really um, center my attention on the stories that my Millland interlocutors are telling me. And so what I also realized when I saw Char's maps was that I wanted the maps initially to place my readers on a landscape that had been drawn for centuries to look a certain way so that you could see like a map of India with a star that showed you where Bombay was and you could situate yourself in a larger global landscape that, you know, has a very, very, very intentional history of power and storytelling. And that was orienting. And one of the things that I wanted the book to do was to create a sense of disorientation with how we are placed in a story. And so when I saw the maps, they weren't like an outline of India with like a star where Bombay was. They were instead like a disorientation by thinking instead about the 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 sort of like embodied um history and stories and um, also like visibility of a landscape that is, you know, created by the people who inhabit it, but also created by history, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it felt like ethically also those images were the visual um, example of what I was trying to do in making an argument about structure and affect. I mean, I really love that because there's one line in your introduction that I underlined with all my life. <laughs> was, <laughs> and, I, and I quote you, it's on page 22, but you say, to suggest that systems and structures must, must somehow be explained before they can be experienced threatens the very foundation of ethnography's promise. And I was like, yes, thank you for saying it. <laughs> Citing this in everything I ever write. <laughs> happy to hear that <laughs> <laughs> I was like I mean thank god because I keep getting the same pushback because um of my own work on driving and roads it's like oh you need to explain how these roads are a part of some world-class city making and I'm like yeah but I'm like talking to auto rickshaw drivers just talking about like speed bumps and potholes so like get with it you know <laughs> like, yeah yeah and, and yeah and I, I do think it's important to situate all these things as you do but to uh treat one form of experience as somehow more important than the other is um, is itself um, it's a power move right and mm-hmm. I think thanks for thanks for writing this because I'm like yes now I have something to cite and <laughs> legitimize my own claim <laughs> I mean that's how we like I, I feel like the power of citation and the power of like privileging and creating bibliographies and all of this like we often talk about how you know are we relevant like is is the way that we write relevant if it's not accessible? And, you know, I think that who we cite, and I'm becoming more and more intentional about that as I move through my career, but I have tried to be really intentional about who I cite and who I don't cite. And also to think like, if we are being told that we are doing the wrong kind of scholarship, then what we have to do is surround ourselves by people who are our audience or who are our interlocutors and to cite them and to draw on them so that we can create a larger landscape of literature that is doing the kind of work that we want to do. And um, 
like I feel like I mean it, it's very meaningful that you say that about um, my work, but I also feel like um, you know I've had such gifts from you know a lot of the the critical citations in that book that allowed me to see like to see the story I wanted to tell in the way I wanted to tell it, and a lot of those people were novelists and poets, um, and. Like I, I, I get very excited about the idea that, you know, there are of course also ethnographers that are part of that, but like, is there something about fiction or is there something about like a lyrical form that has actually more freedom in the way a story can be told? And can we learn from that? Um, and I believe that we can. Yeah. I mean, so do I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I did uh, wonder if, the mill owner and uh, their son uh, happened to read uh, your manuscript after, I mean, your book after it came out. Oh, yeah. So um, sadly, the mill owner uh, passed away a few years before the book came out. But um, I didn't didn't give the manuscript to anyone before it was published. And I'm now doing a much more participatory um, based, um, community action project in which I probably will do that, but it just wasn't the methodological model that I was working with. But, um, when it came out, I did reach out to him and I said, it's out in the world, like, or maybe it was before see time. It's very hard for me to keep track of it. Um, but I did say like, it's out, like, do you want to see it? And, um, I don't know if he's read it. Um, but he, didn't like, you know, there were things that I wrote that I was really anxious and nervous about, but I also feel like I can stand behind everything that I wrote. And I don't think like, I haven't heard any angry responses. (laughs) I haven't sort of heard any responses from that end. Um, So I, that is a long way of saying, I don't know. But I do think that like a lot of the anxiety of um, the book circulating in the world that I feel with pretty much everything I've written, and I don't think this will ever go away, I might just have a different relationship to it is, I want to put out something that I feel like I can stand behind, or stand in front of, I guess I don't want to stand behind, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure how that stand with. works. Stand with. <laughs> Hold hands with. But I also, I mean, I think that there is an anxiety. Um, I mean, I don't know if everybody feels this, but I certainly do of like, what does it mean to see yourself reflected, to be represented? We do a lot of that work, but we don't necessarily experience it that often. Um, But there is a, there is a a sense of alienation when you see yourself represented in ways that you don't have uh, power over, um, uh, controlling and creating. And so I do, I do worry about like how it will circulate in Bombay with people who recognize themselves in it. Um, and I also feel like I can't let that, um, uh, move me away from certain stories that I think are important to tell. And I, and I never made a secret out of the fact that what the people I was really interested in were the stories of the mill workers themselves, not the mill. And, um, so I feel like I was pretty transparent about that from the beginning. So, um, so I think you uh, have already talked a little bit about your next project in the previous questions, but I guess 
Could you tell our listeners more about what you're working on right now and what we can expect to read in the near future? Yeah. Um, so as an ethnographer of South Asia slash India slash Bombay, um, I, I haven't been placed at an institution that um, has made it possible to do like to start up a long term project in Bombay or in India. Um, I have ideas of what that could be if that ever happens, but um, I am at a small liberal arts college that um, has a very high uh, teaching load and a very low research support. Um, so I, I moved out here to Pennsylvania from San Francisco, and I um, one of the things that I have done for most of my life um, in a sort of personal capacity is that as a person who grew up riding horses and who then like chose a life that wasn't like full of excessive wealth. It turned out to be a sport that I couldn't like sustain. Um, so I started volunteering and then teaching therapeutic horseback riding in order to have access to horses. Um, and so when I moved out here, I started riding and volunteering at a um, therapeutic riding program that also has a, what um, is called a typical riding program. So I'm like just, you know, um, equitation, horseback riding, not the, of the therapeutic side, um, 10 minutes from my college campus. And, um, when the, and, and that was just sort of my life a couple of days a week, um, in a personal capacity. And when the book was in production and I was having like some kind of crisis with, uh, in, or like in the presence of the director of the program, who's a dear friend, um, I was like, I can't, I can't start this project in India that I have, I've imagined. And when is this ever going to happen? And she was like, well, you've basically been doing field work here for three and a half years. Like, why don't you write a book about this place? And I thought about it for a minute. (laughs) I was like, what would it be like to do? Like after being in Bombay where like, I'm a completely useless presence. Like maybe I was like good company and I was definitely entertaining as a ridiculous human. And I think a lot of my informants just like got delight from like this ridiculous person that like wanted to watch them work and hang out with them. Um, and like could barely speak the language. Like I was, I was unnecessary, um, to the operation of their life. And then all of a sudden I'm doing field work in a place in which I'm quite necessary. Like I'm a worker at this place. Like I am, I am, um, a volunteer. I'm a teacher. I, um, you know, also with my verbal informants, I speak the language. Um, and so I jumped in with that. And um, the director who in my written work I call Shar um, became sort of like my mentor um, as I started teaching and I'm trying to get certified for my um, uh, professional association of therapeutic horsemanship certification. Um during the summers, I'd be there full time. During the academic year, um, I'm there a couple days a week. During the apocalypse, I'm there every day helping to take care of the horses because the um, uh, workforce has been um, completely decimated. Um, and so I'm writing an ethnography of a therapeutic writing program that um, used to be maybe academically minded and is now in this moment, I think a lot of us are like reflecting on what we want our work to do to be and how we want to put ourselves into the world is starting to feel a little bit more like a love letter to a community that um, I think is, is like a really beautiful space. There's just like 
horses and humans of all different experiences who work together and probably don't all like each other and probably wouldn't be connected or friends off the farm, but um, have created something really beautiful in the space in which, um, you know, there's a lot of reimagining about what it means to inhabit a body and a life in the world. And I think, you know, as an academic, um, this question of embodiment and affective labor is something I've been thinking about my whole career, but also like getting into the realm of multi-species ethnography and disability studies, um, and local field work. I mean, it's a very different experience to do field work in a place that you just sort of um, live indefinitely. Um, it creates a very different sense of what the field is. Um, but I'm I'm sort of uh, writing my way and working my way through that project. And I can imagine in the future there is one program, a therapeutic writing program in Bangalore, that I I sort of flirt with the idea of doing sort of a parallel um, project that would get me back to India. Um, but that probably won't happen anytime soon. So for now, um, this farm is the center of my attention and, um, I feel pretty lucky to be able to continue to be in that space during the time that we're inhabiting right now. Yeah. I mean, this sounds great. And, um, I think you're a fabulous writer, so I can't wait to see what Thank comes you. out of this project. <laughs> the love, I love the love letter to the community. Um, I mean, I mean, I thought that it was hard to like write about an informant I hated. It is really right. hard to like talk about an informant who is a horse and like doesn't <laughs> doesn't use English language at all. Like, so th- that's been like as a writer, mm-hmm. that has been a really interesting challenge. So we'll see how I mean, it goes. Not, not all horses are Bojack horsemen, I guess. So. <laughs> not, no. And actually that's on my list of like apocalypse watching. Cause I actually haven't seen yes. it. So oh, okay. I need to change that. And I, I am aware of that. <laughs> a gap in my, in my, uh, my own archive of uh, resources. <laughs> Well, <laughs> well, thank you, Maura. This was so enjoyable. This was so and fun. Thank you for this doing this. This was so fun and just such profound insights that I'm, yeah, I feel really energized and, you know, in a way I can't wait to get back to writing. So thank you for that. And I can't wait to read what you were writing. So good <laughs> luck with that. All right. Well, um, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And Maura, all the best with everything. Um, you as well. But, yeah. Thank you.